Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we meet two California winners of the MacArthur Fellowship. Hula master Patrick Makuakane and writer Manuel Munoz both learned in October they were being honored with an $800,000 stipend for their work. Makuakane's innovative and transformative hula has pushed cultural boundaries. And Munoz's fictional short stories draw from his experience growing up in California's Central Valley. We'll talk to them about how themes of love, class, and sexual identity suffuse their art and what being recognized as a MacArthur genius means to them. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Manuel Buñoz is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona, who grew up in a family of farm workers in California's Central Valley. His four works of fiction center the lives of Mexican-Americans in the region. Patrick Makuakane is a native Hawaiian and San Francisco-based kumuhula, or master teacher, whose unique form of hula blends traditional movements with contemporary music at the school and company he leads, called Nalehulu Ikaweku. Munoz and Makuakane are among five Californians who have been awarded the MacArthur Fellowship this year. And they join me now. Welcome to Forum, Manuel. Hi, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Well, we appreciate having you. Also, so good to see you again, Patrick. I think the last time I saw you was 2016. And now I am sitting across from MacArthur, a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Aloha and good morning to you too, Mina. And Manuel, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello to you, Patrick. Nice to chat. Yes. Yeah, what was it like, Patrick, to get the call? Well, you know, I kind of didn't get the call because I was at Burning Man <laughs> and I was I didn't have any cell service, but a text seeped through that said the MacArthur Foundation is trying to get in touch with me on a serious matter where they need to speak to me directly and confidentially. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Why do you want to talk to me? And I had a difficult time returning the call because I was at Burning Man. There was no cell service. So it was like five days of frustration until I finally got home. Five days? Yeah. Can you imagine? Um, But finally, when I got to speak to her in San Francisco, I found out and it was mind-blowing. So people were saying or were you thinking or speculating that maybe they were trying to reach you because you got that grant? Well, you know, I mean, why would the MacArthur Foundation try to get in touch with me? And I... I wasn't even speculating about the grant, maybe a little bit, but still, I mean, my gosh, you know, oh. I didn't want to even go there. So wow. it was extremely frustrating, frustrating <laughs> being stuck at your camp and not knowing what, <laughs> what the hell was going on. 
Wow, I'm sorry that that happened while you were a Burning Man of all places. Well, Manuel, Manuel, how did you find out? Oh, mine was much more mundane. <laughs> I was in my kitchen. <laughs> I was in my kitchen when I got the call. Oh. And, uh, you know, my, my, my story in that regard is just, you know, the complete surprise and then bursting into tears within right. five minutes of, of realizing that what they were telling me was not a joke. Ah, have you thought about why the tears came, Manuel? Uh, well, for me, I'm, I was 11 years between books and I had been telling some, you know, good, good, good friends of mine and good colleagues that I was thinking that this might be my last book because I had uh, left my previous publisher and I was trying, you know, to basically restart my career on short story a short story collection, which is in the literary world, <laughs> not the easiest thing to do. Mm. Um, so I had really struggled. Um, and then to have this turn out the way that it did um, was was just really, uh, it, it just, it just, I don't know what it did to me. I, I still can't put my, my, my head around right. how this has happened or why this has happened. It's just a, a wonderful feeling right now. How yeah. do the tears not come? Yeah. I mean, it's, overwhelming. Yeah. You know, uh, Patrick, I read a really lovely interview that you did with Slate where you said that it came with that emotion, with tears, but also with this mix of, of guilt and responsibility. And I'm just so curious where, well, first, where the guilt came from? Well, I mean, you know, I work in a community. I'm entrenched in community. And so there's so many people that um, help me build this work that I do. And a lot of people who, colleagues who are in my position, who do incredible work. And so you think, well, why me? Mm. You know, but someone succinctly told me, um, but you are Blanche, it is you, so get to work and make sure you do good <laughs> and make things happen. Like, okay, geez. Uh, so, and yeah. And then the sense of responsibility? Yeah, to your community to ensure that what you do with this is something that is going to continue your work. You know, when my work is all about community. Um, and how do I, you know, be the responsible teacher that I've been trying to be all these years and hold up those values of culture and sustaining culture and nurturing culture Yeah. and community? Well, actually, I would love to talk with both of you about the work that you do and to give our listeners a sense of the work that um, MacArthur recognized. So, for example, in your case, Manuel, you're a fiction writer, the author of three short story collections and a novel um, that centers the lives of Mexican-American communities in the Central Valley. And so in broad strokes, could you just tell us a little bit about what drives your art, the types of stories you tell, the people you, you talk about? Well, I'm mostly focused on the short story form. And I've said before that I, I feel it's the most democratic way of filling in the gaps where we haven't been. Um, it's been historically difficult for my community to make its way onto the page. Um, and I actually, you know, just speaking to what Patrick was saying earlier, um, I think one of the ways that I've been able to really wrap my head around what the MacArthur means is that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a personal recognition. It feels like a recognition for my entire community. Mm. The, the joy that has come from fellow writers and scholars um, <laughs> who understand what it means to our community and to our literature is what's 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 keeping me really, um, you know, just keeping the moment really joyous, and it's been really fantastic. 
So I, but, you know, again, I, I write about the Central Valley, mostly the small, the small farming towns that are around Fresno. I think most people recognize Fresno, but they won't recognize, say, Dinuba, where I was born and raised, or Cutler Arosi, or Orange Cove, or any of these very small communities that are about 10,000 people that are largely Mexican-American and um, rural and focus around uh, the livelihoods that are made from um, agriculture and, and helping to feed the nation. Yeah. Uh, I love that uh, because of the the lack of representation of, of communities that you grew up around and that you yourself are from, being on the page that the community was celebrating with you. And it sounds like that was the same for you, Patrick. Yeah, uh, totally. What's been really funny is that my partner and his generosity um, put a five by five banner on our window in the busiest street in Trail Hill saying, congratulations to Patrick McCool, Connie MacArthur winner. But I was super embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, can we please take that down? But I had to leave it up, right? Because it was really sweet of him to do that. But like, watering my plants and walking around my neighborhood and people congratulating me with such graciousness yeah. and how pride, how we're so proud of you, all of us here on Petrol Hill. It's like, oh my God, you know, yeah. that, that felt good, I have to say. So, we and of course, part of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, you are a Kumu Hula, a master teacher of Hula. Um, and you practice what has been described as your own sort of unique style of hula called hula mua. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, so just so that everyone knows, I do both. I have a, a, def, a strong traditional repertory as well. Uh -huh. And then hula mua is basically a very stylized kind of hula um, to music that is definitely not Hawaiian. So everything from pop to electronic to opera, um, anything I can get my hands on or that appeals to me as an artist. So what would be some songs maybe that you do uh, with hula that might surprise people? Well, uh, one of our most popular, if not the most popular piece, is to Roberta Flax, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. Mm -hmm. And we actually got a chance to perform it with her when she was in San Francisco about what, 15 years ago. Wow. Yeah, because her manager is from Hawaii and set it up. Um, and so... And also, we performed it for her in her living room this past January because she has ALS and she's unable to like speak or she needs a feeding tube. And so the way that she sustains her life right now is that her friends come over to sing and play for her. And we were given that privilege. And it was brutally beautiful, I say to people, but mm. to have that privilege to perform for her in her living room while she's you know, in the closing chapter of her life, that was just something incredibly special. Hearing you describe that and also just sort of the contemporary music that you use with hula, I'm struck then by the MacArthur Foundation calling you a cultural preservationist. Right. Do you think it, that's yeah. accurate? Well, because, you know, I think we need to reframe this idea of tradition as being something that's stuck in a place. Um, tradition morphs and changes along with the environment. So you can, I mean, hula, it makes sense that it's going to ch shift and change away from Hawaiian music as that environment changes. So I'm a person practicing hula, but I live in San Francisco. So I do both. There's traditional chants and Hawaiian music as well as Roberta Flack and the underground club music that I grew up with dancing to. Um, and I'm just able to make that a part of my life as part of my hula life. Mm. Is there a goal in your writing, in addition to representation, Manuel, and, and showing the complexities and nuance of the communities that are in these often overlooked rural towns um, that go beyond that too for you as you're, as you're describing people? 
I think to a certain degree, especially now, because um, I, what I really appreciate about this honor is that it's helping me to start a conversation about what publishers have been overlooking hmm. um, because I'm not the only writer out there. Um, there are lots of us who are very invested in writing poems, uh, writing memoirs, producing plays, you know, that, that, uh, that serve our community, but they just haven't been able to find, you know, the, the footing within, within the publishing world. So I'm hoping that that's what's going to start to happen is, you know, what, what have we been overlooking, but also, um, as publishers, I mean, but also what, what do they need to do to make sure that they start, um, effectively reaching the audiences that they have been tending to ignore? So that's what I'm hoping right now. And I'm, I'm going to continue to just write short stories. I, I've never felt the need to pull away from them. Sometimes the commercial pressures, have, you know, almost dictated that I go the route of a novel or go you know, do something a lot more commercial. But, um, you know, I, I want to stick to my form. And um, hopefully that will encourage other artists to stick to theirs. We're talking with Manuel Munoz, a fiction writer and professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona, who grew up in California's Central Valley. The Consequences is the title of his last collection of short stories, which was released in 2022. We're also talking with Patrick Makuakane, a kumuhula or master hula teacher, is the director of Nalehulu Ika Wakeu, a San Francisco-based dance company blending modern music and themes with traditional hula movements. They are two recipients of this year's MacArthur Genius Fellowship. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions for our two MacArthur Fellows. Or maybe you're from some of the regions that they are from, from Hawaii, from California Central Valley, from San Francisco, and, and want to share how you feel like your communities are reflected, as Manuel was talking about, or ways that you connect with your cultural identity. Maybe it is through literature or dance, maybe through food, art. You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing this hour from two California MacArthur grant winners and exploring the common ground between them, writer Manuel Munoz and uh, Hula Master Patrick Makuakane. And we were just listening, Patrick, to a song from your play, Mahu. Can you tell us a little bit about this music and about the play? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for asking. And that is an incredible transgender artist, Kamaka Iva Kanaka Ole, who was in our show, Mahu. And um, that particular song is called Hey Hawaii Ao, meaning I am Hawaiian, but I changed the words <laughs> to Hey Mahu Ao, I am transgender, or however you want to define Mahu on the scale. And that particular line, she was saying that I'm not a man, I am not a woman, I am a combination of both in heart, mind, and soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so talk about that a little bit. I think both you and Manuel create art that addresses and reflects on sexual identity and so on. And so... How do you, how do you try to express and reflect, you know, the fullness of the community through your right. work? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I remember I got a call a few years ago from someone who asked me if I accept transgender people into my hula school, and I thought, oh my God, what kind of world have we come to where a transgender person has to ask me if I accept them into our school? I mean, that'd be like calling a ballet company and say, can I wear tights to rehearsal? Of course, you're welcome, you know, and we embrace you and we love you for who you are. Um, and I grew up with my uncle, who worked in a, the world's, the world's, Hawaii's most famous uh, female impersonation club called The Glades. And there are mahu who were coming to our home, you know, several nights a week playing mahjong from one in the morning to six. And I grew up around transgender people and they were the most loving, kindest, sweetest, nurturing people that I've ever met until you cross them. but you know so they were part of my family I mean I thought everybody had an uncle who went to work in a dress Um, so I've always had um, transgender people around me and I just love the people that they are and the sort of vitality that they bring to life and so it made sense for me to do a show called that so that everybody you know there's not these people deserve a seat at the table why are we even having that discussion and I thought just through their humanity that would come through their talent would say all that needs to be said. What was the response to the show, and did you take it to Hawaii? Yes, the response to the show here was fabulous. It was really magnificent. And then going every time we take our show from here to Hawaii, it like it boosts it, you know, at a higher level because you, there you speak a language with your people that only they understand. So they loved it, and the performers loved it to be able to be part of a show called. Mahu, and not being the background singers, but being the artist that is heralded as the headliner, um, you know, and letting them do their thing and talk about their lives and what it was like, and then sing a song and dance a hula and just get the total experience of how their life is right now. And it was really beautiful and, and at times hard. Yeah. yeah. You moved to San Francisco in 1985, and you've talked a lot about the way that San Francisco has influenced your work, but also that you think your success might not have been possible oh, yeah. anywhere else. Nowhere else. So, so talk about yeah. that. How has being in San Francisco done that for you? When I first moved here to San Francisco, I was at Nordstrom's that had just opened up, and there was an act up, um, was protesting against some hiring policy they had uh, about it being anti-gay. And there were hundreds of men on the elevators, escalators rather, that led up to, from the lobby to Nordstrom, all chanting and throwing flyers saying, we're here, we're queer, and we're not going shopping. (laughs) And I remember thinking, well, first of all, coming from Hawaii, I've never seen anything like this at all. 
and how it was a powerful moment because there was it was a protest, but it was also theater. It was wit. It was irony, and it made for a memorable moment. It was impactful, and I thought to myself, oh, they get to do stuff like that here in San Francisco. There seems to be a no holds bar kind of thing. You can do what you want, and so I basically did what I want it you know whatever creativity that sort of like surged through me i threw it against the wall to see if it would stick or not and there was nobody else someone once told me you're so lucky there's nobody over your shoulder criticizing your every move and i never thought of it that way but at that moment i thought you know what you're right wow i've been getting away with so much stuff and not even thinking about it and that's the atmosphere because san francisco was this bohemian city where people were doing i mean a naked person could walk down the street where the socket is ding-dong and nobody would take a look, right? Nobody would care. So that's what happens here in San Francisco. And I love that. I hope we never, ever lose that. Yeah. I, I imagine that does not happen, Manuel, uh, in Danuba. <laughs> <laughs> People would take notice. <laughs> yeah, they would. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the reasons that I uh, that I ask is because uh, you talked about your parents coming to one of the readings that you did of your book, The Faith Healer. I think it was on, on Olive Street. Is that right? I'm sorry if I'm getting the title. Of Olive Avenue. Olive mm-hmm. Avenue. That's right. Um, and that you had done this public reading for gay students. C- can you just talk about why that was an important moment in your life and how it reflects, you know, the, the realities at, in the community there? Well, here I am about to reveal myself as a big crier because <laughs> that that moment choked me up because I, you know, I was the first, uh, you know, person in my family to graduate from college. Wow. So for my family to come into an academic space and really see what I do in the world uh, in, in a new kind of reality, when they came to the reading, they sat in the back row as if they didn't belong when when of course they're central to so much of what i do and think about um but they they started to see that i was involved in conversations and my work was involved in conversations that were really important to young people um from where we grew up and um so that's been a you know that's happened a couple of times they're a lot more confident now when they do come to readings they'll sit in the front row and take up space as they should (laughs) so it's really it's really beautiful um but you know just thinking about what patrick was saying a little bit earlier about how our communities have have languages that we understand uh, you know i think that that go that runs very deeply within my own um you know not only uh you know, the, the situations and trials and tribulations that young people go through, but also how the elders in our community are, are truly seeing that and um, in some ways, you know, might be a lot more compassionate than we think. Yeah. Um, well, in your book, The Consequences, you have a story called Compromisos. And I, I have read a little bit about the backstory around this, but can you tell us about it and why why you wanted to write this particular story? Yeah, Compromisos is based on a date that I went here. Uh, I went on here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I've been here for about 15 years. I lived in New York before I I came here. So <laughs> it, it felt like I was stepping back in time. Mm. And when I went on on this date, the, 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 the man that I went with had just left his family um, and, and, come out and he was really just sort of struggling with a way to be 
But not too long after he decided that he was going to return to his family um, because he felt his, his children were maybe too young to understand what the situation meant. And when I was relating this story to some friends, their response was a little caustic. You know, they, they were really judging this guy for screwing up his family or potentially screwing up his family. And I just was a lot more insistent on thinking, look, this is where he is right now. Um, he's got his own particular situation and his own story to tell. And I have a responsibility to think about that without judgment. Um, and that's often not what I'm seeing sometimes in in stories that come out of my queer community, but also, you know, when I think about mm. the Latina community, um, that that sense of of wanting to allow an existence on the page that doesn't have a judgment behind it is a really tough thing mm. to do. But that's um, that's the story of Compromisos, and it's 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 a um, how this how this man deals with wanting to go back to his family and and um, you know as I said, not judging him for, for doing so. Yeah. Patrick, it sounds like that is making you think of something. Well, you know, I mean, when I think it wasn't until my mid-30s reading a book, because I was a voracious reader as a child, but I never read anything about my community, it was nothing about Native Hawaiians growing up, you know. And the first time that I read a book, um, Louis Ann Yamanaka, which talked about um, Native life, you know, growing up in Hawaii, I was like, Wow. This is my story reflected on the page. You know, I'm part of this uh, literary community, and it was a very powerful feeling—a a moment of agency to see that our stories could be written in a book. Yeah, it it is an incredible thing when you actually see yourself reflected in literature on right. screen. Right. <laughs> you know, using your language and using even the sort of the Creole way in which you speak. I mean, it was like. Look at this. They're telling my story and they're doing it correctly because it's coming from the inside. It's not mm -hmm. an outsider telling the story. You know, it's I, important. I often think it's interesting that we don't connect with it until we actually see it too, like how much we needed it. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're talking with Patrick Makuakane, uh, Akumuhula, the director of Nalehulu Ikaweku, a San Francisco-based dance company blending modern music with traditional hula. We're talking with Manuel Munoz, a fiction writer. His latest book is The Consequences. It's a collection of short stories that was released in 2022. He's a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona. Both of them have won MacArthur Genius Fellowships. They're both Californians, and California plays a big role in both of their work. And we're hearing about what the honor has meant to them, their respective communities. And you can join the conversation with your questions about their work, or if you are hearing experiences that are that they are sharing that are resonating with your own. Again, that number, 866-733-6786, the email address forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. So another area of common ground between the two of you is that you're both teachers. And I, I'm curious about the teaching part of it, the significance um, of teaching to both of you in terms of the advancement of your art or the shaping of your art. And Patrick, I'll start with you. Um, you know, I try to stay, keep my finger on the pulse in, as to what's happening in Hawaii because that's the feeding tube, right? So um, I go back often or I have friends who are cultural practitioners. And the wonderful thing about Zoom is 
I don't have to fly them to San Francisco to do a workshop. We just, you know, do it on the computer. And so I've been able to like bring that kind of instructional mode into the classroom. I mean, it's one thing with me talking about what's happening. Besides teaching hula, I also like to be culturally adept and no. It's just so much more potent if you have someone who's in the middle of whatever you're trying to teach actually explain how they're managing life or what they're doing in terms of a low-e field, you know, farming kalo or or protesting against the 30-meter telescope. It's important that you have these people share their stories. And so just having that access to them through Zoom has been a a really nice shift in the way that I can teach. How about you, Manuel? What role has teaching played in your art, your students? I think what's changed for me over time is that I've learned to recognize students like myself, meaning um, when I was an undergraduate, I felt I didn't belong there. And I felt I didn't um, have a story to tell. And I was just very, very lucky to come under the wing of teachers who encouraged me and would not allow silence to be an option. They really wanted me to put things down on the page. So I teach graduates and undergraduates, but I think increasingly I'm having a lot more, um, I feel like I I have more potential to have impact with the undergraduates Hmm. um, simply because it just gives them, um, you know, the, the light bulb can go off. And I'm really trying to be as attentive as I can to those students who you know, who essentially feel like they, they don't have a place, uh, but to, need to be reminded that they, in fact, mm. uh, do. So I teach at the University of Arizona, and I, I think a lot about what it might mean for me to return to California to teach. Um, you know, what, what would it mean for a California student to have a faculty member, a professor in front of them, who actually knows the, the, the landscape and the background where they, too, come from? Wow. Um, it would be important to get over here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> um, yeah, I I did read a story, Manuel, where you you knew you wanted to be involved in teaching. You wanted to be a teacher. And essentially, I think it was your high school counselor who said, well, then if that's the case, don't apply to Harvard. Of course, you eventually <laughs> ended up going to Harvard as your under, for your undergraduate degree. But that's kind of an incredible statement to have made to you at a young age. Yeah, it was actually a Yale recruiter. Uh. <laughs> I was I, I didn't know what Yale was. So this was a, I was what 16, 17 years old and the Ivies had come to the Central Valley to recruit for, you know, and kind of in the first couple of years that they were actively doing that. And I was speaking to the Yale recruiter um and and the Yale recruiter said, "Well, that's not what you go to an Ivy League for to be a hmm. high school teacher." The Harvard <laughs> recruiter heard that and you know waved me over this is in the days of the paper applications and said listen i'll give you an application Ooh, to okay. find a yale application for you you know because he saw it's like this is a 4.0 student uh, this is exactly why we're here <laughs> we need right. to encourage you to come around so mm. that's that's how that happened so that should have been a diss on yale <laughs> oh yeah and, and it was and is <laughs> um, patrick uh, You've taught hula at San Quentin, and I just want to ask you about teaching there and what that experience was like for you and also the students. Yeah, it was a trip teaching at San Quentin, um, and I have to get back there. I have to redo my anyway. Um, <laughs> but you know, I say that every one of the things that San Quentin gave me was this feeling of 
accomplishment because every time I left there, I always felt that I did something good. Just more so than anywhere else that I've been able to teach at. It's like you know that these guys, you know, they live in a system where it's all punitive. There's nothing about rehabilitation. And they have this like two and a half hours with me where they're doing art, where they're dancing, where they're paying attention to one another, where they develop their community. And then you can see it in their eyes and the way they move and they, how they triumph over their bodies after a certain time and how much spirit it gives them. It's so life-affirming. And um, yeah, it's one of the most special things that I was able to do so far in my life was being there. What have they said to you after they participated in the class that has stayed with you? Well, you know, <clears throat> I did a little documentary and uh, while I it was hearing them uh, answer the questions from the, from the interviewer because I never knew how they felt. We never really talked about, hey, how's this working out for you guys? I mean, you're feeling like fulfilled? What's the deal? You know, and hearing them talk about how this sense of community that they built together through hula was something really life-affirming for them and how they loved being challenged by the dance, something they thought was going to be very simple at first but proved to be very technically challenging. And watching them triumph over those little challenges and... Um, I was surprised. I mean, I knew I got a lot out of it, and my students did. I'm not, I wasn't sure how the impact was going to be for them. And hearing them say that they were really impacted by it, it was, it felt... Is that funny. a common misconception that hula's easy? Yes. Yes, it is. Or, and it's something that women do, not men. Wow. Yeah, so they had to sort of like um, jump over that hurdle too because, you know, the way you get around to prison is with your masculinity card. I mean, you have to be very careful, right? So they had, and I forget, I've been doing this for like decades, so I don't even think about that anymore because there is that idea about if hula is only for girls, right? But it's just been a way that men have been over the past many decades claiming it as a dance for themselves as well. So, but in prison, it was like, oh yeah, you're dancing the hula, you know, so, but they, yeah, they got over that and they Fishing. proved, yeah, yeah, they proved that they had the, the muster to manage that. Fishing way. boundaries, open minds, that's what our MacArthur fellow guests are doing with us today, hula master Patrick Makuakane and writer Manuel Munoz, and we'll have more with them after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California plays a big role in the work of two MacArthur Genius Fellowship recipients. Uh, They are recipients just this year. They learned about it. They got the call in September. It was made public in 
October, and they're joining us now to talk about what that experience has been like for them and about their work. Patrick Makuakane is a kumuhula or master hula teacher and the director of a dance company based in San Francisco that is really pushing new boundaries and innovating with hula. Manuel Munoz is a fiction writer and professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona. His most recent book is The Consequences. And Manuel, I'd like to ask you about another subject that you treat in your fiction, and that's immigration. And I'm wondering if you could read a passage from your short story collection, Consequences. This is from the story, The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA. Um, And feel free if there's anything you want to say about it before you read the passage. But sure. Uh, the, The character that you're about to hear is a young woman who's going down from you know, the Central Valley down to LA uh, to meet, hopefully, her partner who has been deported. And this is the plan that they have to always meet at a particular park. Uh, but along the way, she, she meets another woman in the same circumstance. So this is from The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA. It's always the same when I board the bus. It's already half full, mostly women from Fresno and the little towns just south of it, like Fowler and Selma. I get a seat alone and the bus moves on to Goshen, then to Larry and Delano, each woman who boards more weary than the last. They're all like me, or at least they look like me. I don't know their histories. I don't know if they came from South Texas like I did, were taken from school in the third grade to work in the fields like me. I was resentful of my parents for giving me the life of a dumb mule, and I left them almost to the minute of my 18th birthday with only a scrap of paper with their address and phone number that I never ended up using. I walk around with a lot of pride because I did that, because I proved that I could support myself in a hard world. I did all right for myself for a while, then I fell in love. When we get to Bakersfield, the bus is packed and a young woman boards with a big sigh and looks at the seat beside me. Con permiso, she says before she moves to sit down. I know just from looking at her that this is her first trip. She carries a cheap white purse in one hand and a bulky shopping bag in the other. She reminds me of all the women in town who everybody knows have just recently arrived from Mexico because they go to the grocery store in high heels and tight dresses doing their best to be like the American women they see on television. She's wearing a purple dress and white high heels. And just by that, I know she spends too much time watching the afternoon soap operas, not understanding that the women on those shows only scheme because they have no jobs to go to. It will take a while for her to someday let the TV station rest on the evening news with Jessica Savage, the kind of person I wish I was smart enough to sound like when the need to listen to English for practice turns into a wish to look like an intelligent and confident woman. She sits down quickly as the bus begins to pull out of the station, and when she adjusts the shopping bag under her her legs, I look at her hands, but there isn't a ring to be found. The bus is back on the road, and soon enough I can feel the rise into the mountains, the ascent into Los Angeles. My stomach flutters like the times when Timoteo and I boarded the cheap traveling carnival rides that sometimes sometimes set up in the town park, and I place my hands on my ribs, remembering. Hmm. 
It's from The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA by Manuel Munoz. I just love the detail that you tell of how you can tell who's a recent immigrant based on how they dress and how closely they mimic what they think people in America dress. It's such a detail that is um, that you would only know, right, <laughs> if you if you are from the community or understand the immigrant experience. I wanted to ask you about the inspiration for this story. I understand your mom was a source of inspiration in part. Oh, yeah. My mom was a source for this one, especially. Um, I just, and it started with an innocuous question. I asked her about a car we used to own. I said, didn't we own a like a 74 Dodge Dart or a Duster? It was a yellow car. And as soon as I asked that, she she kind of flew into a rage to say, oh, yeah, that's that's when the car got impounded because I went down to pick up your dad and so on and so forth. And I said, hey, listen, hold up. <laughs> Can we backtrack? <laughs> how did we how did we get there? And that's where, um, you know, she she told me, you know, one of the things that you as younger people don't understand is we did all of this without the benefit of money or technology. I went down to get your father from the border without, you know, a bank account, ATM card, credit card, um, cell phone, like none of those things. It's just like their, their, you know, ingenuity and trust in each other that they would be where they were supposed to be. Um, and I find, I just found some of those, those things that she would tell me about how they had advanced plans of where to meet either in LA or in San Diego um, really remarkable. Um, and it turned into that story for that, uh, for this, for this book. Uh, and there are a couple more in there, um, that I, I spun into, into their own negotiations. Mm, such as, I'm sorry, such as, are there any, uh, a couple more you want to highlight? Oh, one, one more. Um, well, when my, my father had a stroke about seven years ago and some of the the experiences that he had, even post um, um, Immigration and Naturalization Act in '86, when he, you know, as he said, "I got my papers fixed, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be here." And he was deported anyway. There was a, a moment he was telling us about, um, you know, being out in the fields with some cousins, and uh, in one of the rounds up, you know, roundups, uh, he was taken along, and those kinds of, you know, small anecdotes that my family maybe didn't consider to be much more than something to joke about years later um, became the stuff for me for fiction. Absolutely. You know, both of you, your work really focuses and, and honors, I would say, the places that you call home. And Patrick, you were saying that you go back very often to Hawaii. In fact, I think you said you're going, you're, you've got a flight tonight. I do. <laughs> you're, you're headed back. It makes me think a lot about, um, and I know you've thought a lot about the situation in Lahaina and the devastating fires there. Yes. And I, I think a lot of folks here are getting the message that we need to go, we need to support tourism there and um, and be there to help bring back that economic engine uh, post the, the fires in Maui. And I'm just wondering how you feel about that. Yeah, it's complicated, right? I was just speaking to a friend of mine. Her name is Heidi Hole. She's an attorney here. She's the wife of the pastor of Great Cathedral. And she's been doing a lot of pro bono work in Hawaii. And I told her, what is the most 
pressing issue right now facing people. And you know what the answer is? It surprised me. It makes sense, though, but it's mortgages. Because the 90-day freeze from FEMA will be over in November. And so people don't have the money. And then to have to pay for something that's not there anymore, the damage that does to your psyche. I mean, a mortgage payment, you know, and how do you fill out forms for FEMA and uh, for assistance, employment assistance? I mean, it is really much more complicated and difficult than we can even imagine. You know, we're thinking about blankets and food. Of course, those are important. But, I mean, paying bills and trying to figure out how you're going to live every day and, like, putting the grieving process off because you're just trying to figure out how to, where you're going to live tonight or how you're going to pay the next bill. It's been really, really difficult for people so tour, supporting tourism, I mean... Yeah, is, I, that, the, is that one I, I, way to help in your view, or what would you say? Yeah, you know, yeah. I would say there are... Finally, we're figuring out really qualified organizations that can use assistance, and I would say donate to these places so that people can really just get a step up in this process, which has been so devastating. And I know you, you can't speak, but if you were there, would you want tourists there? <sighs> hmm. Um, it's hard to say, you know, because I don't know really what's the impact of tourism in terms of economics right now. So, I, you know, I don't think I'm qualified enough to answer yeah. that. You know. But it's probably a mix, right? right. The push and pull, the right. need even can yes, be sometimes exactly. frustrating right. when people are going through so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for trying to think that out with us. Sure. Um, well, let me go to caller John in Santa Clara. John, you're on. Yeah, hi. This is for Akumu Makuakani. My wife was, um, at the age of 53, we saw The Merry Monarch on television in Oahu, and um, that persuaded her to be dance hula. And she danced it until she died several years ago with, Kumu, with Kumus in the South Bay. But one of the questions, and, and we've gone every year, we went every year, at least until she died, to uh, see your annual show. Um, but one of the questions were, you have said a long time ago you were never going to participate in Ameri or compete in Mary Monarch. Do you still have that uh, same opinion or same idea? Uh, yes, because now I've transitioned to, I'll, I'd rather do Burning Man than Mary Monarch. <laughs> well, Mary Monarch is like the royal standard, is the competition in Hawaii, the, the um, Olympics of hula for Hawaii. And it takes a lot of money and effort to get to Mary Monarch. Um, and it's one of those things that um, it's a lot of hula schools is on their bucket list to do, you know. Um, and am I being a bad hula teacher by saying, that's nah, all right, let's just go to spend the money and go to Burning Man. Yeah, um, yeah. I've, at one time I had a desire to do it, but um, I guess that's sort of how left me. i rather, instead of spending all that money and time on like a seven-minute piece, i rather spend that money and time doing a show where it's an hour and a half, you know. So that's where I've been like spending our uh, resources on doing shows in Hawaii rather than going to Mary Monarch. I see. And what, is there a project that you're working on now that you want to talk about? Well, kind of, sort of. I'm actually going to be directing an opera, which is supposed to be released in 2025 or 2026, on the life of Timoteo Ha'alilio, who was a Hawaiian patriot in the 19th century, who um, was able to speak to Britain, France, and United States and gain Hawaii's um, recognition as an independent 
independent sovereign state. So he has an amazing story that's operatic, and it'll be the first opera in the Hawaiian language. Um, and so I'm, the libretto is written, the music is done, and uh, yeah, so we just got to get that mounted. And I'm super excited. Now, how many operas have I directed? Not, <laughs> but um, I'm just super excited that they asked me. Andrew Morgan, who's the director of Hawaii Opera Theater, used to work at San Francisco Opera Theater and for Chanticleer, and he's familiar with my work. And he asked if I would, you know, choreograph it and direct it. And I was like, "Okay, Andrew, if you think I can do this, um, so um, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with it." But the fact that we're getting the story out on Timoteo Halilio, who is a really incredible patriot, who through two years, tried to get this recognition from all these three different um, naval powers, who were the biggest naval powers at the time. Um, and then he died on the ship on the ship back to Hawaii. Uh, I mean, it was just like he literally gave up his life for his nation. Um, well, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and we're talking with Patrick Makuakane and Manuel Munoz. Um what do you see as the connection between hula and opera? Well, they have amazing, I mean, there are amazing operatic-themed stories in hula. You know, hula is always the, it's the sort of physical manifestation of the poetry. So, I mean, we have epic poems, so many of them, that would be perfect for an opera. And Timoteo's story is one, but we have many others. I mean, I'm also doing a musical based on Pele, the volcano goddess, and her younger sister, Hiyaki Kapolio Pele. And that's been just an amazing challenge to try and work around, to create, to take a Hawaiian story. And I wonder if uh, Manuel can speak to this, sort of like to take a Mexican-American story or a Hawaiian story and put it in the context where people who are not Native can understand it. Because that's one of the um, challenges we're having is like working with these producers from New York who say, well, but why did Pele do this? It's like, oh my gosh, do I really need to explain it? Or can that be something that doesn't need to be explained? Yeah. You know, you run against these sort of cultural barriers that you don't want to have to do certain things. But if you're presenting it to another audience who doesn't understand the particulars or idiosyncrasies yes. of our culture, how do you get that point across? Do you need to get that point across? So we have written it over and over again to try and sort of like deal with that dynamic. Uh, Manuel, do you have a thought on that, just in terms of, you know, insider, outsider, who your audience, so on? Oh, if if I knew the answer, I'd be <laughs> an editor at a New York press. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, all joking aside, I, I, I do want to highlight you know the work of people who uh, who practice other arts different from mine. Marta Gonzalez, who's a, a MacArthur a fellow from last year, is a is a community musician and activist. And right now, she has been uh, involved in producing something called uh, "Writing the Currents of the Wilding Winds," which is an adaptation of a novel by the Chicana novelist uh, Elena Maria Viramontes, who is my mentor at Cornell mm -hmm. and just the, you know, the merging of, of two seemingly unconnected forms of expression, different communities come to see that. And uh, last week I was privileged to just see a little snippet of that musical performance um, at a conference that yeah. was honoring Elena and it was phenomenal. Mm, what a lovely shout out. Well, Martina, this listener writes for, for Manuel, when you write about the Central Valley, is it one of your memories of the past or what's your relationship to the valley as it exists today with exurbs replacing farms in the Delta and new warehouses lining the highways? 
Oh, it's very different. And, you know, I, I, I remain committed to writing about the Valley in the 70s, 80s and 90s. One, because that was the time that was very formative for me, but it was also a time that was filled with lots of contradictions and changes uh, that, as I said before, I didn't feel had ever been documented in our literature or in other art forms. So, um, you know, maybe via essay, I could address what's going on now, um, but it doesn't pull me in that direction. But at the same time, there are other, you know, hopefully other artists, other poets uh, who do want to speak to the moment. And uh, there's room for all of us for what we want to say. Well, the sister writes, having had an opportunity to attend a performance of The Natives Are Restless, I was grateful to learn the truth about Hawaii's history and Native Hawaiians, which at times brought me to tears that were soon gracefully turned to joy when Patrick shared humorous Stories about Hollywood's misconceptions of the dance and hula skirt. Afterward, I was deeply inspired to study Hawaiian dance and culture with Patrick. Truly honored and challenged to have had an opportunity to learn the stories and to share them through hula. And recently had an opportunity to attend Patrick's most recent performance, Ritual, that I truly enjoyed. I hope I will one day have an opportunity to return to class as Patrick is truly the gift that keeps on giving. Manuel, I asked uh, Patrick about a future project, but I'm wondering, I know you probably don't like this question, but do you have one in mind? Is there something you're planning to do with the award or no? Too soon? No, I do. I, I, I am going to start work on another book. Um, during the summer, I had sort of recommitted myself to writing and I was thinking I was going to write another short story right. collection. But then when this came around, um, I absolutely felt, okay, my feet are on the ground. I, I can do this. And so I'm, I'm writing another collection and uh, we'll see what it's going to be about, but I, I have a feeling it's going to address um, family separations mm. and how uh, parents sometimes leave their children. So um, I know I'm being very cryptic, but I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, no, no, uh, no rush. <laughs> <laughs> and teaching as you do it or... Yeah, wow. yeah. We'll see how long. We'll see how yeah. long. Come and visit San Francisco. Don't believe the bad press. It's still a beautiful and vibrant city. I'd love to show you. Well, all. it's wonderful hearing two MacArthur genius talking to each other, as well as the privilege of me getting to talk to both of you. Patrick Makuakane, Hula Master, Manuel Munoz, writer and professor of creative writing. Thank you both. Thank you, Mark Nieto, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. Thanks for listening. Funds for the KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.